Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Barker. Presidents, prime ministers and foreign ministers from many countries have urged China to press Russia to stop its military actions in Ukraine. For example, the Australian prime minister, Anthony Albanese, said recently that China should take careful note of the weight of the world's opinion and respond by clearly condemning Russia's actions. Yet China is tenaciously holding on to its partnership with Russia, claiming it's a relationship which knows no limits. Yet it's hard to judge whether Xi Jinping is angry or frustrated with Vladimir Putin over the invasion of Ukraine, nor is it apparent whether a clear condemnation of Russia by China would make much difference over the course of the war. Well, I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast today an academic who's made the relationship between China and Russia the main area of his research for many years. Dr. Marcin Kaczmarski is a lecturer in security studies at the University of Glasgow. Marcin, welcome to China in Context. Welcome, thank you for, for the invitation to the podcast. How would you describe China's attitude towards the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Very simply, I would say that China wants to have a cake and eat it. So China certainly does not want to condemn Russia. China does not want to join the West in criticizing Russia. At the same time, we see that Beijing does not want to help Russia in material terms, because it is one thing to support uh, Russia rhetorically, to follow Russia's and mirror Russia's rhetoric and to blame NATO, the US for, for the conflict. But the other thing is to put Chinese money to invest in um, the Russian economy, to help the Russian economy, or even to try to benefit from the fact that Russia is a weaker party and China could strengthen its position in inside Russia, in the Russian economy, but also its relevance for, for Russia as a political partner. Even if, if there is some assistance to Russia about which we don't know, the, the very fact that China is not uh, showing it off and is trying to maintain pretend that it is neutral also tells us a lot about the limitations of, of their relationship. You say limitations on their relationship, and yet the phrase that I've heard is that the Chinese partnership with Russia has no limits. What do you think that means? This phrase, we should remember, it was used in, in official documents before the, before the war, and perhaps had the war taken a different course, had Russia secured a quick victory, perhaps then we would have seen the realization of this phrase in practice. But I would say that this phrase remains on paper. So China pretending that, that there is no, no limits, as you said, this phrase, no limits for the partnership. In fact, China is making it clear that it is not Russia's ally and China is not willing to assist Russia in the course of, of this conflict. So I am not certain to what extent, and we will probably not know for, for a number of years, what Chinese leaders knew when Vladimir Putin came to Beijing on in the beginning of February. Um, and we don't know how much was uh, revealed of, of Russia's, Russia's plans. But uh, what we can say for sure that uh, is that there are clear limitations to, to the partnership. And they, they relate to uh, the possible military assistance, which I don't think we will see. They relate to 
the area of uh, economic assistance. What, what I would say, what China is doing is, to put it bluntly, relatively cheap, because it is supporting Russia in, uh, in international organizations, it is supporting China in its rhetoric directed against the US, but China is not helping Russia in, in practical terms. So you're making an interesting point here that uh, even though there's a strong relationship between Russia and China, China's not supplying military support to the Russian army, and neither is the Chinese People's Liberation Army being mobilized uh, to support the Russian campaign. But there is an important economic link here, isn't there? China is a big purchaser of Russian energy at a time when much of the rest of the world is trying to cut its dependence on Russian oil and gas. That's a very good point and a couple of issues that I'd like to mention, mention here. So firstly, the China, although it is uh, buying so much oil from Russia, its imports are very well diversified, including the Middle East and, and the African states. So even increasing the number of uh, the amount of oil purchased from, from Russia, China does not take any, any specific risks um, in terms of uh, becoming as dependent on Russian oil as Europe is dependent on Russian, Russian gas. Second, uh, China is, uh, or Chinese companies, to, to put it more precisely, are benefiting from the fact that Russia is forced to sell the, this oil uh, at a substantial discount, which means that they, the Chinese players can increase their stock of, uh, of oil and prepare for some um, uh, uncertainty in the, in the future. If we are to see any further moves on the part of, of China, I would expect this exactly in this energy sector, because while China purchases a lot of oil from, from Russia, there are still some elements of this energy cooperation which are which are unfulfilled or missing. So I would expect China to step in and try, for instance, to purchase shares of Rosneft, which the BP is trying to get rid of. I would expect China to bargain much harder again with, with Russian companies, realizing that they have limited room for, for maneuver and trying to squeeze even a them to, to receive even a, a better price. And I would also expect that China may, in the coming months or, or one or two years, receive what it was promised um, after 2014, after Russia's annexation of Crimea, namely um, shares in Russian uh, oil producing fields. Because this was the promise that Russia did not fulfill. It was India which, received, which ultimately received shares in uh, the Russian um, biggest oil field. And this is the area of energy cooperation when I would expect China to be able to push Russia and to achieve more, more gains if it decides to, to, to support Russia in, in other areas. And I mostly mean here the economic support in terms of either investments or loans or helping with technology. And as now Russian production of, for instance, also a project with liquefied natural gas in, in the Arctic, they are facing delays because of the uh, lack of access to, to Western technologies. And this is the area where China has a certain potential to step in. Well, you've given me a very nuanced and well-researched answer, and I don't want to oversimplify things, but a lot of countries around the world are facing economic hardship because of the disruption caused by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But here is China apparently benefiting from cheap, relatively cheap oil prices, new investment opportunities in Russia, 
perhaps a closer economic partnership with Russia. And, and China doesn't have these problems with soaring inflation or uh, disruptions to uh, energy supply, which are causing so many problems for the European countries. So in a sense, I'm thinking that the uh, Ukraine invasion has not proved to be a great economic burden on China. Yes, you're absolutely right in, in this regard. European states and states in, in, the, in the global south are probably, will probably suffer much more much more than, than the Chinese economy. At the same time, we have to remember that China faces problems related to its zero COVID policy, which results in a number of regular repetitive lockdowns like the one with in Shanghai, which lasted for two months. And this makes the war against Ukraine and the difficulties in the global economy more problematic for China, I, I would say. So in this sense, while China benefits from cheap resources and while China has other benefits, it as an economy which is dependent on the health of the global economy as well, I would say it suffers indirectly because of the problems in the US or in, in Europe in, in particular. At one stage, there was a view among experts on international relations that the war in Ukraine might divert attention away from the Asia Pacific. Now, it seems to me as though quite the opposite has happened. Uh, I have seen many articles uh, about the um, relationship between China and Taiwan since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And also NATO has tightened its connections with South Korea and Japan. So do you think that China's leaders foresaw this as a potential outcome uh, of the conflict in Ukraine? No, I don't think so. I think it is a huge surprise. Uh, as, as we discussed before, we, we cannot tell how much Chinese leaders knew, but we can easily assume that they expected a quick Russian victory. Even judging from the experience of what they see in, in Crimea or in Syria in 20, since 2015, they could have expected that Russia uh, would have secured a quick victory and uh, a regime change in, in Ukraine. Russia's failure, uh, I think it's the first big surprise for, for the Chinese leadership. But the developments around Taiwan, I would say are uh, another lesson that uh, the Chinese leaders um, draw from, from this conflict. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that they expected this, um, this turn on, such, such, um, such a turn of, of events. But it is really difficult to say which, which direction dominates or thinking that dominates now in Beijing, whether the lesson is that we need to postpone the use of force against Taiwan exactly because what we have seen in Ukraine, because Taiwan is not Ukraine, it's much better prepared, it has much stronger allies, or whether the uh, or whether Chinese leaders draw another lesson, much more dangerous for Taiwan, that if Taiwan is going to be held by the US, it means that it is better to use force sooner rather than later when the US is diverted by the conflict in Ukraine, when the US needs to supply Ukraine rather than focus its, its attention on, on Asia Pacific. So this is where I, I would not be certain which thinking dominates in, in, among the top leadership. For me as a journalist, one of the major concerns is the way in which the authorities in both Russia and China, have used censorship and propaganda to try to 
silence their critics over Ukraine. It's the kind of approach which leads other countries to describe them as totalitarian regimes. In other words, systems which seek to control the political discourse. It must be hard as an academic to take a balanced view. For sure it is, uh, especially when one is based in, in a Western democratic setting and when one encounters colleagues and other experts from, from Russia and China who, are, who find it much more difficult to uh, speak out, who have to self-censor themselves, who need to take into consideration what the leadership line is on, on, on certain issues. At the same time, I, I try to remember about my own uh, biases and about my, my own attitudes when doing the, the research and um, looking at, at Russia and China. Uh, I try to be as much as objective as, as possible with, with this caveat that there is the understanding of what kind of political systems they, they are and um, how they threaten their own citizens in the first place. Well, thank you. I think that's an injunction to us all who study China to try to be aware of our own intrinsic biases. Uh, that was Dr. Marcin Kaczmarski, a lecturer in security studies at the School of Social and Political Sciences, University of Glasgow. This podcast is produced by the SOAS China Institute, part of the University of London. And you can find out more about our courses and research at soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here at the China in Context podcast team. Thank you.